Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. It's February 1922, and a new radio station launches. Two MT Riddle. But until Captain Eckersley seizes the microphone, it's all rather bland. After a few too many gin and tonics, the show stops being as dry as the gin and starts being a real tonic. I'm so sorry. Can you imagine? I used to be paid to write links like this for chat shows. Yeah, used to. This time, 2MT Rittle gets a rival, and not from another Essex village, but from a very big village 60 miles away called London. 2LO is calling on the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling. This is London Calling. Yes, thank you, Arthur Burroughs. This is London Calling. Well, it's Guildford Calling, but this is the episode when that happens, when London starts calling. And that is the voice of Arthur Burroughs in our opening music there. We've not mentioned that before, but we have mentioned Arthur Burroughs himself quite a lot. He's the guy who organised the first musical concert back in 1920. That's episode three in New Money. Uh, He escorted Melba in episode four. He spun requests at sea and published mid-Atlantic newspapers in episode five. Uh, Burroughs campaigned to the government in episode six to bring back radio. He moaned to Peter Eckersley in episode seven. He has been there throughout and now finally he gets to broadcast properly and that's that's what we all want isn't it really well that's why i'm here doing a podcast until someone gives me a job i am employable you know just the uh, the stand-up gigs have gone a little quiet and i write sitcoms for the bbc and that's all closed down for a while too so this is my lockdown project the british broadcasting century podcast telling the story of the bbc radio and life as we know it the slow way so this is the 2LO episode. That's one radio station that you may have actually heard of. In fact, people of a certain age, um, that certain age being about 120, they would have known 2LO as being synonymous with the BBC in the 1920s. The British Broadcasting Company, for the first few years, essentially broadcast from the 2LO transmitter and other local stations around the country. And they would mention this on air all the time. What we may now call imaging sort of sounded... Like this. This is 2LO, the London station of the British Broadcasting Company calling. 2LO calling. That's Arthur Burroughs there once again. But before we get to his story and 2LO, some of your correspondence. Thank you for it. Very, very kind of you to get in touch. You are real superstars. Do keep spreading word of this podcast. Tell your friends. Post a Facebook thing. Tweet about us. Put us on MySpace. We are on Facebook.com slash BB Century. Uh, the same on Twitter. Uh, we're not on MySpace yet. Uh, Listener Giles Booth has been in touch. He's a former BBC studio manager, in fact, and he was inspired by this podcast to flick through his old copy of the BBC scrapbooks. And he found the script for the Marconi reconstruction that we featured in episode one. You may remember Marconi played Marconi. Well, turns out this was for the 1936 uh, BBC radio show Scrapbook for 1901. They used to have these lovely programs called Scrapbook for whatever it might be, and they would zoom in on a certain year and would give you the highlights and indeed recreate parts of that year. So that is how we get Marconi playing Marconi. Can you hear anything? His assistant Paget playing Paget, but the third voice on that clip, Kemp. Distinctly, Mr Marconi. He had died. So I'll listen to Giles Booth. He has unearthed this BBC scrapbook and it makes it clear in there that Kemp was voiced by an actor. There's a lovely footnote in the script clarifying that inverted commas around a character name means a passage is spoken by an actor when so-and-so himself did not take part in the programme. So, uh, happy to clear that up. Pre-recorded or archived material was oddly frowned on back then, yet they thought it was cheating 
So they broadcast these things live. It's a lot easier as well. There are very limited recordings from about the late 1920s, the odd royal broadcast, that sort of thing. But it seems that recording largely started with the BBC's Empire Service in 1932, which, of course, later became the World Service. And they'd record parts of programmes then because recording allowed broadcasts to go out at different times to different territories. We've also had a tweet from Andrew Barker, a former BBC TV producer. We were talking on the at BB Century Twitter feed about Broadcasting House, uh, the book which was released when the building was opened. Andrew was reminiscing about this wonderful Art Deco building, as he calls it. Andrew says, After my first interview back in 1982, I was let into Broadcasting House just to have a wander around on my own. Found the corridor outside the DG's office. Different security then. Yeah, you're not kidding. Uh, He says, also went to the BBC canteen, as vilified at the time by Radio 1 DJs. Yeah, I recall the BBC canteen with fondness. On a typical day when I was there, I'd look up and see Michael Burke, John Peel and Roy Hudd all queuing for the coleslaw. Happy times. Do keep your emails coming in to paul at paulcarenza.com. Last episode, we left Peter Eckersley in early 1922 in an Essex hut, redefining what you could do on the radio. It was chummy and funny and silly, irreverent and illegal too, because he kept flouting the licence by overrunning. And bear in mind, this is a time when to even be given a radio licence, you need to prove you're of good character. Yes, it needs someone more sober, literally, to be trusted with radio, perhaps. Arthur Burroughs in Marconi House at the Strand in London is, as we know from previous episodes, the head of publicity there. He's got a team of 17 under him and they're still busy being PR for this global industry of Marconi's wireless telegraph company. But really, that's a business of telecommunication. Broadcasting is not a job, but a passion for Burroughs. And he's written prophetic articles about concerts being beamed into people's homes and maybe one day Parliament itself. And now the Postmaster General has approved of broadcasting. They're just following the people. They didn't mind Eckersley's freewheeling. The first thing I've got to introduce is a record entitled... By the way, why are all records entitled? Why are they called something? The people liked it and the government like people. But Peter Eckersley in Riddle is the only one in the country in front of any sort of microphone. Right back and say you heard me, your distance and where and how. Hark for the end He's having a bit too much fun. Wow, 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 wow. So says our resident broadcasting history buff, author of From Marconi to Melba, Tim Wonder. He becomes the object of several ladies' adoration. A lady arrives in a red Rolls Royce and wants to take him away and marry him. I mean, this is just an incredible change. Eckersley loves it. At the hut every Tuesday night, there are 50, 60 people all outside regardless of the weather. He lets the children of his raining come into the hut and sit at his feet while he's being a complete buffoon and clown. He invents the first special effects studio. We all think Monty Python started horses' hooves with coconut hooves. No, Eckersley. He used to play records with a hole drilled off centre. He liked that they played them at a different speed. He even liked them better when he covered them in marmalade before you play them. There were no rules. This is the goon shows before the goons were born. In the summer of 1922, remember, nothing like it's been heard before. Most of the people listening were born when Queen Victoria was still on the throne. It's an incredible time. But while Eckersley's 2MT show is popular with many, Arthur Burroughs, he is still a Victorian at heart. He wants radio to grow, while Eckersley's idea of a weather report is that he looks out of the hut window and says, On Monday morning, 
it's always raining. That's a bit of a common joke on 2MT Riddle, even a catchphrase. And this station is getting thousands of listeners. There are about 8,000 licenses issued at the time, countless more unlicensed listeners. There are also two other European radio stations, one at The Hague and one from the Eiffel Tower. So is it time for one more? After Marconi's ask for another licence, the Postmaster General grants one. Marconi engineers leap into action, especially Supremo's C.S. Franklin and our old friend Captain H.J. Round, who designs the transmitter, the aerial and later the microphone and the amplifier. And in fact, this week, for the first time, I actually heard what Captain Round sounded like. You know, last week I mentioned that listener David Jervis, uh, Captain Round's grandson, has been listening in. Well, David sent me this. So here for a slight detour is Captain Round in action. I was fortunate enough to get taken on as a junior engineer with the Marconi Company at 10 shillings a week and all found. I was strongly advised against this step on my part by my college professors. And among scientists generally at that time, there were many attempts at debunking Marconi's efforts. Actually, the scientists missed the boat, and my voyage on that boat during the following 35 years was like one wonderful dream with hardly a moment without some new phenomena or some new success to thrill one. In about 1906, my interest was rather centred on the idea of transmitting speech by wireless, and we had succeeded in talking over a distance of a few miles. Marconi came to see the experiments, and from that time I became personally associated with him, an ambition which I had had from the beginning. Hear the full 15-minute clip. The link is in the show notes. So anyway, Round and Franklin have designed the kit, so 2LO may get underway, live from the heart of the capital. Marconi's had started another transmitter in May 1922 called 2LO. It's LO for London, the call sign. Arthur Burroughs had given up trying to manage Eckersley. He'd gone to London to set his own station up to do it properly. They weren't allowed to broadcast music, but he was going to do poetry reading and speech. Well, Burroughs is a demonstrator at heart, and he loves nothing more than showing up at town halls or private societies and showing them radio in action. So at first, 2LO is aimed at VIPs, often overseas listeners, who might need radio demonstrating to them. And they might not appreciate Eckersley's rather flippant style. So Burroughs still has that demonstrator's bug. It all starts then with that broader scope. Broadcasting just got broader, rather than 2MT Rittles, perhaps rather targeted narrow casting and specific sense of humour. 2MT knew its audience, 2LO would aim wider and perhaps then go further. Which one will hold British broadcasting's future? 2LO Marconi House this is 2 London testing. Well, Burroughs shows himself as an innovator. Night one of 2LO features radio's first ever live commentary of a boxing match. It's actually the Daily Mail's idea. Yep, they're back on the scene with radio ideas and a great idea it is too. Except they couldn't hear the actual boxing match. You got a reporter at Olympia phoning in the commentary through to Marconi House off air where it's written down and then it's read out on air. It's a technical masterpiece. They just should have picked two better matched fighters. Between Kid Lewis and George Carpentier, it's a knockout in under a minute. Not quite sports broadcasting's great debut. Maybe they should have picked a football match with a fixed longer length. But it prompts the Daily Mail to print listings for it. By the end of the year, there are four wireless radio magazines in Britain, although the Radio Times is still a year off yet. 
2LO transmits from a small cinema in Marconi HQ, which was actually used to show trainee films to the staff. And the films continue even as 2LO is on. So often 2LO's radio engineers would set up the show in complete darkness because a training film is on right next to them. It means that wires are often pulled up by accident and then fixed in pitch black. And there's limited storage space as well, right next to the projector. The 2LO microphone is housed in a large box known as the meat safe. And into that microphone speaks Arthur Burroughs. Thought by many to have a golden voice for radio, so, well, let's hear it. This is actually a very rare clip of the man behind 2LO. Arthur Burroughs died in 1947, so the surviving clips are very limited, and they all sound a little primitive. I was with Marconi's wireless telegraph company when 2LO began. We were anxious to know whether the government would permit firms like ours to exploit broadcasting here as in America where scores of commercial stations had popped up like mushrooms. The British government was cautious. At first it would only agree to an experimental service containing no music. Yeah, you can hear it in his voice. This is a broadcaster from another age, a stilted age, compared with Eckersley's freewheeling style. Burroughs was even at the time thought to be amiable but fussy, is how he was described. So was Eckersley ahead of his time or was Burroughs behind his? Well, it is natural to compare the two, because they did at the time. So here is Eckersley from 2MT in Essex, looking back on 2LO in London, his friendly rival. I suppose in the spring of 1922, they start, Marconi Company started 2LO, from, uh, from London, of course. It was a transmitter on the roof of Marconi House, as you know, and um, it was one and a half kilowatts. All Eckersley did was when 2LO closed down, came online and just made fun of everything he'd said. Arthur Burroughs, the man with the golden voice, the late Arthur Burroughs, who was a very precise. And it did afford us some fun at Rittle to get a little stimulus from these transmissions in the way of caricature. And uh, one of the things that really impressed the public enormously about 2LO was that when the station opened, they beat on a gong. 2LO hires the chimes for London Symphony Orchestra to give them some gravitas. Ping pong, ping pong. You know, one of those things that hang up in concert halls with little different tubes and you hit the wrong one. Well, uh, we thought we can't be outdone. And I remember we'd got all the scrap iron we could find in Rittle. Eckersley's version, ginger beer bottles, empty bike frames, which used to hit so hard they smashed live on air, spraying ginger beer across the transmitter. Uh, well, it was like that. We were awfully precise, too. He just thought it was roaringly funny, as did his listeners. 2LO has got lots of fan mail saying, do not transmit when Eckers is on the air, because he's much better than you are. That's got to be a bit of a blow for That's Arthur gonna hurt. As the only two radio stations in the country, they are colleagues, but they are natural competitors. A bit like, you know, Ant versus Deck, Emma Dale versus Coronation Street, Peter Sisson versus Trevor MacDonald. So let's compare and contrast. And like that first boxing match, will it be a knockout in under a minute? In the Essex corner of a field, it's the designs department of Marconi's, represented by Peter Eckersley. And in the London corner, it's the demonstration department of Marconi's, represented by Arthur Burroughs. Well, round one, 2LO is allowed longer, a strict one hour a day on their licence, but several days a week. 2MT still only allowed on once a week on a Tuesday, although if Burroughs knows what's good for him, he'll leave Tuesdays to Essex. Round two, 2MT Rittle's licence allows greater power over in Essex, 400 watts versus 2LO's 100 watts. But thanks to the central location, 2LO's small reach still reaches more people. So we'll call that one a draw. 
Ah, but round three, Tuolo has a bit more tech. They've got two desks, three telephones, a piano, a music stand, and as far as I can tell, the world's first on-air lamp that lit up to tell people to pipe down. That comes in early September, largely because they're broadcasting from a working cinema and need that light so people know they're actually on air. I wonder if they're in a brighter room at the time. How much longer would we have had to wait for an on-air light? Would we have one at all? Round four and 2LO have that strict seven minutes on, three minutes off policy, so they shut down, yeah, every seven minutes to listen in in case the government tell them to stop broadcasting. They never do tell them. Technically, 2MT and Essex are meant to do the same, but they never really bother. In London, though, they play by the rules. If Eckersley brings the entertain to the Rethian values, then Burroughs brings the educate. Many 2LO broadcasts are actually lectures or demonstrations. Burroughs still very educationally minded, you see. The informed part of the Rethian values, well, that would come in time. Right now, the news is the newspaper's domain. At this point, it's a demonstration station. So 2LO is not publicly advertised. Although if you are on the mailing list, you get a little postcard saying what's on and when each week. Each broadcast is a test still. Many listeners would hear it at institutions or meetings or clubs or gatherings. They'd invite Burroughs or his department in to demonstrate this new radio thing. It means that each broadcast actually needs a new licence. One benefit of this is unlike 2MT and Rittle, who had one rolling licence, here the conditions of the licence could change. So that 100 watt limit, well that's raised to one and a half kilowatts. So the range goes up too. Our occasional broadcasts from Marconi House had only an initial range of about 30 to 40 miles. Later the range was increased and we soon gained an audience of perhaps 30,000 listeners. So that causes quite a jump from a few thousand licences at the start of the year to tens of thousands. So who wins this duel? 2MT or 2LO? Well, we've already said that 2LO will become the first BBC transmitting station. But 2MT and Essex, they're not going to go down without a fight. As we said, listeners love Burroughs, but they love hearing Eckersley skewer Burroughs even more. And Burroughs isn't even safe in his own studio. Burroughs, dear Arthur Burroughs, the late Arthur Burroughs, great man, nice, charming person. He used at the end of the um, end of the Sunday programmes, he used to say, "The night shall be filled with music, and the, the cares that beset the day shall fold their tents like the Arabs and silently fade away." Now, instead of relying upon a clever engineer to fade him out very gently, he walked backwards over the silent floor of the studio so that the last away was lost in a mush. And uh, one time, a, a rather naughty and skipping friend of mine, he and I had a conspiracy in which we stretched a string across the studio behind Arthur Burroughs and, and uh, silently fade... <laughs> <laughs> Eckersley had his closing down poem. CQ, the concert's ended. Sad wails the heterodyne. You must soon switch off your valves. I must soon switch off mine. And Burroughs had his. The night shall be filled. I think more radio stations should close down with poems each night. Although I suppose nowadays they don't really close down at all, except when they close. In 1922, of course, they are meant to close down every seven minutes for three minutes in case of those government messages telling them to stop. While Eckersley just doesn't bother, Burroughs does adhere to this three-minute silence. Oddly, some see a benefit to this gap. One woman actually writes to Burroughs, You'll be pleased to hear how much I've enjoyed your news of the air race. I've equally enjoyed the three-minute intervals, which have given me time to reach the kitchen and base the joint for dinner. 
On which then, let's have a three-minute interval ourselves as we hear from you, good listener, with AM, your airwave memories. And while we're thinking of great rivalries on the wireless, like 2LO versus 2MT, here's a rivalry memory from radio producer extraordinaire Mr Chris Byland. I've been a radio producer now and a broadcaster too. For near on 20 years, I've worked at a local, regional, national and international level and I've been really, really lucky with some of the things I've been able to do. One of my earliest memories of radio probably is the Radio 1 chart show. I mean, Radio 1 was huge back in the 90s for me. Uh, I used to come to Claxton-on-Sea, where I lived, with the Radio 1 Roadshow. I remember Simon Mayo coming along each year and all the presenters bringing some of the biggest acts in music. Uh, but the thing I remember most was probably 1995. Mark Goodyear announcing Oasis and Blur battling it out for the number one spot on the chart. And there was just something about that moment for me that really, really got me into radio. Just the way it was counted down, the tension, the build-up, and of course, just the rivalry around who was going to be number one. It was such a tense moment. I remember we were just coming back from a holiday in France and we were listening to the Radio 1 chart show from Kent all the way back to Essex and we got home and I had to sit in the car. We'd been in the car for nearly two hours listening to the chart show and it hadn't quite got to number one and I was still in the car waiting for that number one. That's how big it was and it was such an iconic moment as well. In case you'd like to know, Oasis with Roll With It lost out to Blur's Country House that Sunday in August 1995. Before we leave 1922 for another week and return to the horrid old present day, that 2MT-2LO rivalry actually works for the good of radio. Between the manic influence of Eckersley and the power and the range of Burroughs 2LO, at this point, radio really starts to take off. Here's Tim Wonder. One other thing that comes out of all this tomfoolery, all this amazing change, the sale of radio components, the sale of home-built radio sets, wireless societies form, there is an explosion in listeners. I, I believe by, by the end of the summer of 22, there was 50,000, 60,000 people listening. There's reports from Northern Ireland, Aberdeen, Cornwall, France, all the marine operators, all the military operators, commercial operators. Yeah, they don't land aircraft for that hour that Eckersley's on. They can wait. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or they've got to be down by one minute to seven. Yes, 2LO reaches more, but Eckersley is the appointment to listen broadcaster. We've all heard them. Either way, between these two stations, broadcast radio is now becoming an industry. The Marconi Company sets up a whole new department, a new label, to supply ready-made valve and crystal radio sets. They call this device the Marconi phone, and every home should surely have one. Now, some were keen on the technology, but others were keen to see their radio stars, these new celebrities, live. You know, like the Radio 1 roadshow of its day. You could actually see Peter Eckersley in his hut. He would let you in to watch. And you could see Burroughs at his touring demonstrations. So all of this has made me ask you good people on Facebook and Twitter for your memories of seeing radio shows broadcast, if you have. And we have been inundated. So I think what we'll do is we're going to drip feed these throughout future weeks. So after AM, Airwave Memories, I think we call this FM, First Hand Memories. So this week's First Hand Memories, or, you know... FM. Pip Deval, she says, I went to see the Today programme being broadcast from Athena in Leicester. It's the poster shop, isn't it? Around about 2007. It was so smoothly done, the links back to the studio were seamless, all very impressive. After the end, David Blunkett's dog nearly dragged him off the stage. 
This is from Mostly Book Chat on Twitter, who of course went to see the Radio 4 Book Club and said it was just amazing. Up to 50 people chatting, James Naughty ensuring that everyone feels at home and relaxed. The recording starts, it's a masterclass in interviewing, audience asks questions and basically you are at Book Club. Part of the experience, I loved it. And lastly for this week, Sam Jackson. He has been Senior Managing Editor of Classic FM, Smooth and Gold. He is Radio Royalty. He says, My favourite memory from 15 years in commercial radio was of studio producing a live half-hour national news programme with a presenter who would always provide some kind of cake or pudding for the two of us. He would frequently go out to the kitchen at 6.25 in the evening to heat up the custard, only to forget his studio pass. Cue frantic waving at the window at 6.29pm with a tray of sponge puddings and a jug of custard balanced in the other hand. 30 seconds later, he'd be calmly uttering the words, The headlines tonight. And by the end of the first package, we would have polished off those puddings. My other favourite, says Sam, is the time when a cleaner plugged in her vacuum cleaner and thus unplugged our entire set of outside broadcast equipment. That OB was at Prince Charles's house. Yeah, so there you go. Top that if you can. Uh, If you would like to email your AM, that's your airwave memories, an audio clip of your earliest broadcasting memories, or you can send me FM, that's your first-hand memories of witnessing a radio show in action. Send either or both to paul at paulcarenza.com. It will be great to have your thoughts on the show. That's it for this episode, but next time, there can't be room for a third radio station, can there? What if this third one is not a Marconi station? What if other wireless companies want in? Something must be done. What is this? America? And with this third station, 2ZY Manchester, comes children's broadcasting. So we speak to legend of children's BBC, CBBC, CBBS, Mr Chris Jarvis. Next time on the British Broadcasting Century. If you would like to support the podcast, and we would love you to do so, join us on patreon.com slash paulcarenza, where we have a growing band of people, and that helps me buy a few extra books for research and even some old gramophone records I'm trying to pick up on eBay that have footage of artists of the day back in the early 1920s. I would love to be able to afford them, and you can help me do that by going to patreon.com slash paulcarenza or coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com slash paulcarenza, and I thank you for it. Or indeed, if you can share the love on Facebook and Twitter, you will find us there and you can rate and review us wherever you found this podcast. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer and the archive clips are either public domain or private domain and we have tried to find whose domain exactly. Oh, and we're not affiliated to the BBC at all. I don't know why you'd think so. Oh, the title you mean? Well, it's a little similar. Stay informed, educated and entertained and join us next time as British Radio grows in Manchester here on the British Broadcasting Century.